You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Jean. And I'm Jack Lewis. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, March 29th, 2023. Later in the program, we have Disabilitin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world, hosted by Abe Shapiro. More on today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB Local News. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. WFHB Local News during our Spring Fun Drive. The WFHB Local News is a volunteer-powered 30-minute newscast that reports on government meetings, local headlines, and daily feature reports. This award-winning news program is a special part of our community, empowering citizens to become journalists and creating an inclusive space for concerned residents to become a part of the local news media landscape. WFHB's vibrant news department couldn't happen without you. From programs like the WFHB Local News to Bring It On, Ola Bloomington, Eco Report, KiteLine, and more, funding for the news department comes from listeners like you. With all that said, WFHB's news department needs your help in order to continue providing a diverse array of news and public affairs programming. It's our goal each and every week for you to learn, become inspired, and take action on issues in South Central Indiana. The WFHB Local News needs to raise $200 during this very program to keep this program alive and well on the airwaves. To make a pledge, please call 812-323-1200. Again, that's 812-323-1200. Or you can visit WFHB.org and make a donation safely and securely through our website. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting WFHB Community Radio. The Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting on March 22nd, Director of the Library, Greer Carson, gave his monthly report. Thank you. Okay, so overall collection use for February was consistent with previous year's use at this time. On balance, we're still kind of climbing our way out of the pandemic in terms of seeing an eventual return to pre-2020 collection use. February's featured e-library resource was the newly acquired Black Life in America, which garnered a 463% page view increase from January to February. Communications and marketing focused much of their February marketing efforts on Black History Month and Library Lovers Month. Our top Facebook posts were What's Your Favorite Book by a Black Author, which saw a reach of 6,518 with 140 comments, and What's the Last Book You Couldn't Make Yourself Finish, which saw a reach of 3,418 with 58 comments. And our Twitter impressions were up significantly due to a very popular tweet about our video game station's monthly title, Florence, which was actually retweeted by the game's publisher. 
We are excited to begin implementation of a new volunteer management system, Better Impact, which has impressed our volunteer coordination teams and comes highly recommended by peer organizations. And just to share a very minor but positive note on our monthly patron comments, there were no complaints received for the month of February. I'm not sure if we've had that before. <laughs> of course, our complaints are always constructive, but it's nice to see that we didn't have any. He also updated the board on the Southwest Branch construction. He shared that the construction is on schedule for the grand opening on Friday, June 9th. So we are currently installing all the ceiling tiles, restroom tiles, and interior glass throughout the space. The exterior glass has been installed, which means that the northeast and south-facing views are visible and as grand as we had hoped. Opening day collection work is completed, so all of our books and materials are scheduled for delivery in early May. The stonework for the outdoor amphitheater will begin this week and next. Our substantial completion and move-in schedule has been coordinated and confirmed and begins April 28th with our first punch list, followed by shelving installation, furniture delivery, and technology installation. May will also find us hosting about a dozen VIP tours of the space, beginning with our staff and our trustees, our friends of the library board members, partners from area schools and government entities, and even some alumni staff. We expect a few final change orders for next month's meeting, specific to the temporary heating issue from back in December and January, and some minor bulkhead and ventilation adjustments in the building. And we are in the process of hiring for our Southwest branch manager, and will begin hiring for Southwest librarian and library assistant positions within the next two weeks. And of course, the big news is that our grand opening date is indeed Friday, June 9th. We look forward to holding a wonderful grand opening celebration for the public that day, including food, performances, tours, and of course, lots of use of the building and checking out of materials. And we will then begin normal hours of operations on Saturday, June 10th. Next, the board heard from Kyle Wickemeyer Hardy, who presented proposed changes to the bereavement leave policy. This is return of our bereavement leave to the way it was prior to our 2010 labor management agreement. There was a lot of um, misunderstandings of what this was about. So we're back to all benefited staff having access to up to five days of leave, uh, dependent on individual need, involvement in funeral, planning, travel, and other circumstances. And so um, these policy, the policy changes have been updated and, pardon me, reviewed by a labor management committee and the leadership group, and there were no changes. I do have one notation on the t uh, paragraph that includes at the end of this, um, people may request additional benefit leave if needed um, with the approval of the library director and we need to cross out or associate directors since that position no longer exists. So that's the only adjustment. Board member Carrie Asari supported the change to allow staff members to ask for additional time off if needed. She asked for clarification that the five-day allotment was per bereavement leave. Wickemeyer Hardy responded. Yes. I'm very glad to hear that um, they can get with the, with the directors just because this year I happen to have a mother-in-law die, a sister-in-law die, and it was all far away. So you just never know. No, you don't. And, and some people have to travel or they're more involved, and so we, we try to take those on a case-by-case -case basis. So it's five days 
per person. So like if your mother yes. dies, you have five days. Is that yes, correct? Yes, but you can also ask for additional if okay. necessary. Okay, but normally you, normally you have a total five. of 10 depending on if yeah. Uncle Harry yeah. dies and right. so on and so forth. Okay. Exactly. But I'm glad to hear that that caveat is there. Just mm -hmm. The board voted to amend the bereavement leave policy unanimously. The next Monroe County Public Library Board of Trustees meeting will be held on April 19th. And we pause here to talk a little bit about our WFHB fund drive. I am currently joined in the studio by Clayton Young. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes, a pleasure. So, Clayton, tell us, what is your WFHB story? So, right now, um, I'm a I'm a correspondent for WFHB. Um, I I write about identity politics, as you put it earlier in the uh, while we were off mic, and my most recent story for WFHB concerned anti-Semitism in Bloomington and oh, very what prominent. we need to know. Yeah, especially in this day and age, uh, we definitely see. That is a prominent issue in town and around the world as well. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. So tell us, what is your current project right now? So I'm working kind of on an extension to that piece almost about extremism and how people become radicalized. Um, it, YouTube has a, uh, has a decent portion in it as well as uh, internet um, message boards like 4chan. Oh, yeah. You got to watch out for those algorithms. They can yeah. be very, very uh, toxic. Toxic. Toxic is the word right there. Anyway, but on a brighter note, I would like to ask you, how has WFHB impacted you in general? How has it really uh, helped you reach your goals personally and professionally? Well, I'm just honored to be a volunteer at WFHB. They provide fundamental grassroots journalism to uh, the people of Bloomington and surrounding areas without a, without a, uh, a bias and since we rely on listeners like you, we need um, it's all it's always good to to keep those funds rolling in to not become uh, a, a subsidiary of something that's bigger. Hundred percent. And for all of our listeners out there, it is WFHB's 30th anniversary. And we are also in the midst of our spring fund drive. Our current goal now is forty five thousand dollars and counting. But uh, we, uh, we are looking to get at least $200 today. So if you find the time, if you uh, feel the urge, and most importantly, if you love community public radio and a marketplace of ideas, now is the time to donate, donate, donate. Get those bids in there. And we also want to have a little special shout-out to uh, Ron Ede for his donation. Thank you, Ron, uh, for your support of local community radio. And... And again, that, that website to donate to is wfhb.org or call us here at the station at 812-323-1200. Again, that's 812-323-1200. Thank you. Now it's time for Disabilletin, where we cover the top stories impacting the disability community across the country and around the world. Hosted by Abe Shapiro, 
We turn to Shapiro for his archived edition of Lawyers, Schools, and Access, a journey through the history of judicial decisions in special education, part one, on the WFHB Local News. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is Disabulletin. Tonight, we begin the first leg of an adventure covering the history of special education law in the United States. This is the next chapter in Disabulletin's continuing coverage of the recent Supreme Court case Perez v. Sturgis. To hear more about the case, you can find our previous episodes on WFHB.org. Just type Disabulletin in the search bar. Tonight, we're taking you back to the year 1893. The Chicago World's Fair is in full swing, and on September 20th of that year, Charles and Frank Duria successfully test the first-ever gasoline-powered automobile on the streets of Springfield, Massachusetts. Of course, despite these achievements in technology and national pride, special education is taking a step back an hour and a half away on Pemberton Street in Boston, Massachusetts. In its newly built granite shrine of justice, the Supreme Judicial Court led by Chief Justice Marcus Perrin Knowlton, hands down a decision in its latest case, Watson v. Cambridge. The case dates back to 1885, when the plaintiff, quote, was excluded from the schools because he was too weak-minded to derive profit from instruction, end quote. In his decision, Chief Justice Knowlton goes on to write that based on testimony given by the child's teachers and physicians, quote, he was so weak in mind as not to derive any marked benefit from instruction and further that he is troublesome to other children, making unusual noises, pinching others, etc. He is also found unable to take ordinary, decent care of himself, end quote. Although the court did not rule on the city of Cambridge's request to exclude the student, the final decision was turned over to a jury, which was asked, according to Knowlton's decision, quote, whether or not the plaintiff's presence in the school was a serious disturbance to the general order and discipline of the school, and whether the final decision of the school district was indeed final or could be overturned by a court, end quote. We do not hear about the jury's decision after this only that it appears the Massachusetts court gave the final say, stating that so long as the school districts act in the, quote, good faith, end quote, of schools, such a decision was therefore up to them, and if, quote, answered honestly, a jury composed of men of no knowledge in deciding education issues should not be permitted to say their answer is wrong, end quote. In other words, the court ruled that the school district had the final say in all matters. This affirmed the court's original rulings in a case that took place 23 years prior, Hodgkins v. Rockport, which first argued school districts were acting in the good faith of the schools by excluding children hindering the function of the school. We now move ahead in time. We're in Antigua, Wisconsin in the year 1919. Prohibition of alcohol has been ratified by the U.S. Congress, and the Paris Peace Conference has convened to discuss the negotiations of Germany post-World War I. Spurred on by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and the right of all nations to self-determination. But just as the U.S. Congress rejected this philosophy, 
so too did the Langdale County Municipal Court reject 13-year-old Merritt Beatty's right to attend public school alongside non-disabled students. As a graduating senior at Indiana University, I covered the historical timeline of special education law in my history senior thesis. One of those cases was Beatty versus Antigo Board of Education. Beatty, a 13-year-old student, had been removed from school by the Antigua, Wisconsin Board of Education. According to testimony, Merritt lacked the, quote, normal use and control of his voice, hands, feet, and body, end quote. Other challenges included, quote, uncontrollable facial contortions, making it difficult for him to be understood, end quote. The Antigua Board of Education argued that Beatty's differences created a, quote, depressing and nauseating effect upon the teachers and school children, that by reason of his physical condition, he takes up an undue portion of the teacher's time and attention, distracts the attention of other pupils, and interferes generally with the discipline and progress of the school, end quote. In spite of those obstacles, Merritt managed to keep up with his classmates from first to fifth grade, after which he was transferred to the city school for children who were deaf or who had, quote, defective speech, end quote. He was then placed back in a public school after five weeks in the fall of 1916. But why such a decision was made is not explained. After a state education representative visited Merritt's school and observed him in class, she recommended he be placed in the deaf program again, which he then declined. Merritt's parents appealed this decision to the Antigua Board of Education, which held a meeting to determine if Merritt could return to public school. Despite one member's motion to reinstate the boy, this was not seconded by the board. A local court then took on the case, where a jury ruled in favor of reinstating Merritt. Justice Walter C. Owen of the Wisconsin Supreme Court affirmed the school district's right to exclude Merritt Beatty, writing, quote, The right of a child of school age to attend the public schools of this state cannot be insisted upon when its presence therein is harmful to the best interests of the school, end quote. Owen then said the question at hand was who is responsible for deciding whether such a student can be removed, the courts or the school district? Based on Owen citing a state statute confirming the school board's right to transfer students from one department to another for their, quote, good order and advancement, end quote, and Merritt's, quote, presence being harmful to the school's welfare, end quote, the district had the right to exclude him, even if it was, quote, displeasing and painful to them, meaning the members of the school district, end quote. However, fellow Justice Franz Eschweiler disagreed with his colleague on the grounds that a jury had found, quote, no evidence that as a fact this boy's presence did have any harmful influence on the other children, end quote. Eschweiler also argued that the school board had no, quote, exclusive power and that such a decision by the board violated the state constitution's goal to secure to every child a substantial and fundamental right to attend the common school, end quote. Therefore, the school district's right to transfer Merritt Beatty was unconstitutional. Regardless of Eschweiler's disagreement, the court permitted Merritt's expulsion. Next week, the scales of justice begin to tip as we travel to the 1930s, 
where parents in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, began to grow frustrated over their children's being denied an equal opportunity in education, all because of their disability, inspiring others across the country to mobilize. Until then, Abe Shapiro, WFHB News, Live and Learn. All right, welcome back to WFHB. Uh, I'm Clayton Young, joined by... Abe Shapiro. Uh, thank you for that wonderful Disabulletin uh, news segment. I really enjoyed it. So how did you get started with the uh, Disabulletin show? You know, it came to me in a dream. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I have been interested in disability advocacy for some time now. I, uh, I found an organization on IU's campus called the Neurodiversity Coalition, which was to help individuals on the autism spectrum or uh, who had uh, other uh, differences uh, adjust to campus. And then after leaving Bloomington for a year to teach, I came back and I was interested in a career in radio. And I thought, why not combine my passion for disability rights into a radio program, which is what we just heard. And I should mention that Disabilitin is the first disability news program that WFHB has had in its 30-year history, which is really exciting. And it's the only disability-focused uh, news show that I know of. Yeah. Um, so switching gears, uh, our spring fundraiser is still going on. We just need $150 left of our $200 uh, daily goal. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. So uh, if, you want, if you want to donate to us, uh, just call our offices here at 812 812- Three two three one two zero zero, and of course, make sure to go online to wfhb.org and make your donation today. Again, we are one hundred and fifty dollars short of our goal right now. So, if you donate today, we will reach our goal, and it's even better if we exceed our goal. So, again, remember. The goal is $45,000. Our goal today is two hundred. We are $150 away. So please, please, please get those donations in. Thank you. Next, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on the WFHB local news. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. In case you haven't noticed, it's tax time. April 15th is coming right up, the day when you have to file your state and federal tax forms or ask for an extension of time while you wade through all those little pieces of paper with numbers on them that carpet your desk. 
But as Groucho said... You've got to take up the tax before you can take up the carpet. And fraudsters are laying down wall-to-wall tax scams again this year. Fake tax preparers are out there offering bargain prices and bigger refunds. They won't sign the return or enter a tax preparer identification number, both of which are required by the IRS. They'll base their charges on a percentage of your refund, ask you to sign a blank or incomplete tax form and or file the form without giving you a chance to review it. They may well claim they can get you a bigger refund, but anyone who's willing to help diddle the tax people is going to be willing to rip you off too. And any refund that does arrive will come to them just before they disappear over the horizon in a cloud of dust. Don't fall for spam emails or phony social media posts. When I needed a new tax preparer, I asked my friends and got a great recommendation to a firm they'd used happily for years. In a new wrinkle this year, the IRS reports people are using tax software to create fake W-2 forms, reporting income they never received and withholding that was never withheld. Don't try it. They're on the alert for this, and it's quick and easy for them to check a W-2 and call it a phony. And speaking of phony calling, the telephone is still a favorite with scammers who call you or send a text or an email or a social media post and pretend to be IRS agents. You need to remember and make sure your friends and family members know that the IRS always sends letters in the mail if they want to contact you and never uses recorded phone messages. And the real tax people never threaten to have you arrested, ask for payments in gift cards, wire transfers, or cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. The IRS cannot cancel your identification, suspend your social security number, or have you deported. And real tax people will never ask for your personal information or your bank account numbers either. And if your identity has been stolen, and it probably has, and somebody files a tax return in your name, contact the IRS and file an identity theft affidavit. Trying to mess with the tax people, or letting someone else do it, can get you a whopping big fine, or even a forced vacation in a crummy hotel with bars on the doors and windows. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Harnuski Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Abe Shapiro. Better Beware was produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producers Cade Young. And for WFHB, I'm Jack Lewis. And I'm Jean Herr. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, whenever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for cool solutions, climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 